Hi guys, um, this is going to be a long episode, so get your favorite drink and snack and settle in. I have a guest today. Hello there, and welcome to the Cocoa Butter Junkie Podcast. I'm Michelle, and this is my podcast. This is a podcast on the everyday reflections and experiences of a Kenyan woman. It is my examination of life living through mental health issues, grief, growing up, aka kicking and screaming into adulthood, the experiences of being a woman in Kenya, making friends as an adult, struggles with faith, and a bunch of other topics. Thank you for listening. Um, this is my first interview on the podcast, and it wasn't as hard as I expected, um, but also my guest made it really easy. <laughs> as you will hear in the episode, she is really articulate and was really easy to interview, but I think she's done this a thousand times before. I don't know. <laughs> um, let me know after you listen. Um, we'd intended to talk about adulting, being a couple of millennials, but then we ended up talking about many other issues, largely of which was Chris's journey into adulthood, but also uh, talked about um, newly found freedom freedoms as an 18-year-old, family ties. We also talked about um, importance of relationships and community outside of family, um, racism, sexism, um, mental health, the patriarchy, misogyny. Uh, we talked about resilience, workplace harassment, making it, OCD and therapy, growing up outside of Kenya, respect or lack thereof for women and why no one is listening. And of course, we talked about 2020 and COVID. Um, we recorded this over the internet using the Anchor app. So sometimes there are delays um, and sometimes one end of the conversation disappears. And of course, the sound quality is not the best. But you guys know I do this in my wardrobe, so <laughs> that shouldn't be an issue. Also, before we start, um, I think you need some context. Um, we went to the same high school, so there are some things you might not get. For example, she mentions um, at some point my sister and Hilda, who we both know. Um, the four of us went to my girls' high school, Eldoret, together. Um, at some other point, she mentions Mrs. Ayeko. Uh, who was a music teacher in Mwegals. Um Delta, which was a stream of the class we were in. If you've schooled in the Kenya school system, then you definitely know about streams. In Mwegals, we had Delta, Alpha, Phi, Theta, and Beta. Um, houses in Mwegals are what we call the dormitories. Um, when we were there, I think there were eight houses, but there might be more now. Um, we called the school prefect corps. Um, who wore grey sweaters while the other students wore maroon sweaters as part of the school uniform. We also talk about chapel choir at some point. Uh, chapel choir was the group that sang in the school Sunday service. And then lastly, there's a reference to bitter herbs. Um, so bitter herbs were the vegetables that they made for us on Tuesdays and Thursdays with Ugali. Um, I think they were supposed to be skuma wiki, but by the time they got to our plates, they were just something else, hence the the term bitter herbs. <laughs> Hi, Michelle. Hey. Hi, Sasa. Oh, how are you? 
I'm good. Kofit? I'm good. Yeah. Mm. Sunday. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, let's just start by you introduce yourself. You just say your name and then you can say as much as you want about yourself. And then mm-hmm. how do we know each other? Okay. So I'll so. Hi, um, my name is Christabel Makoha. Um, I had to talk about yourself when you're not given a prompt, so I'll try. But I'm <laughs> Kenyan <laughs> in my 30s, um, last born of a family of six. Um, yeah, and I guess how we know each other, we went to high school together, Michelle. We were actually in the same class, I think, from, from one to from four. Mm. So, yeah. It was good to kind of see each other growing up in those awkward stages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How and long ago was it? Um, oh, it was wow. 16 years now, right? 16, 2001 to now. Wait, 19. No, as in, as in since you finished. Since we finished, yes, exactly. Finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Goodness. you're old. Yeah? I that old. <laughs> have a teenager by now. <laughs> okay, so how how do do we reconnect? After uh, I think your sister. So when I, because I used to come back every so often, uh, and would meet up with Wilfrida maybe every every so often whenever I'd come back. But I think uh, it's actually at her wedding. Yeah. Yeah. So last year around June when she was getting married, I think that's how you and I ended up reconnecting. And you looked really good at the wedding, by the way. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. You did too. <laughs> I still remember your shoes. They were really nice. Ah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So where have you been um, for 16 years before we recorded last year? Goodness. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so let's see. 2004 is when we finished high school. Uh-huh. So I kind of bummed at home for a bit, I think, as everyone else was doing computer classes. And the next year, I was kind of waiting to, to go to uni and then somehow ended up um, getting getting a scholarship and went to the UK first for like two years and did uh. my IB, which is kind of like from five and six. Uh. Um, so I did that for two years and then applied to uni and sort of moved, moved to the US for undergraduate was there for four years of uni then worked there for about maybe three years uh, I think that brings us to 20 end of 2013 so 2014 Jan I moved back home to Kenya I think after about eight years of being away stayed for about two years two and a half years working then the travel bag hit again <laughs> I moved to Zambia for about again two and a half three years uh, um, then I just moved back to Kenya last year I think July, yeah, but June, July, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, what was what was the journey like for for you the first time you moved out of the country? Like, tell yeah. me about the journey from from LD. Yeah. <laughs> Did you go with your parents? Were you yeah. alone? Yeah, that's a really um, actually that's a really interesting question. So, as part of background, I think I had gone to Nairobi maybe three times before that. Mm. I think once like music festivals with the choir with Kenna Mrs. Ayeko mm. and then twice to visit my sister and, and brother, I think. And then the third time was when I came for my interview. So just to preface that traveling was not a thing. Mm. <laughs> so I think, I mean, I was a bit nervous, but more excited than, than nervous. I think my parents and my siblings were more nervous for me than I was. Mm. Um, so I remember going to the airport. I think my dad and uncle 
and my sister dropped me off if i'm not wrong at the airport think, at the airport yeah jkia i think my sister gave me like her favorite pair of jeans all <laughs> i still remember them very clearly they're these faded blue jeans which was like her best and they became my you know my sunday best so that's what mm-hmm. i remember from that trip but i also traveled with one other lady she's um who went, who we went to the same school with we both got the same scholarship her name is grace which kind of helped um because i think we were both nervous having never sort of traveled out of the country and remember we flew through dubai if i'm not mistaken and i was so nervous about sleeping in between the like when when the plane sort of stopped in dubai and we were waiting for connecting flights uh, i was so nervous that if i fall asleep i'm going to miss my flight and then you know <laughs> yeah Yeah, so that's where my first trip was and we landed in London. Luckily, the school had sort of organized for some students to pick us up. Uh, uh, so they picked us up from London. We got on a bus and drove all the way to Wales. But I remember seeing my roommate because she came over to introduce herself. Her name was Kelly. Uh, and she had the wildest, she was white, she had the wildest dreadlocks, I think, in multiple different colors. And I was just thinking, oh, my God, what am I walking into? But she turned out to be pretty great. and they sort of ended up in a room with i think three other people one person from the uk another one from venezuela and then the third roommate was from norway they were both um second years i was the only first year in the room uh, so yeah that was my my first time living i was so you just left on your own you were like 18 19 i had just turned 18 and i remember even trying to get my i was trying to get my id before i left Mm-hmm. and i hadn't turned quite 18 yet and the guys were giving me a hard time so i had to go with my dad and got my id before i left but i had just turned 18 mm. yeah. yeah what was that like um apart from the school work what was that like um at this point i guess there was some issue with the internet connection because my end of the conversation disappeared but the question was did you find yourself having to grow up really fast um it was I I feel like I, a lot of what I felt it's probably I'm I'm realizing it in retrospect because I think at the moment there was okay. so much coming at you one is obviously uh, the excitement of oh my god I I'm 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 out of the country I'm like somewhere in the UK and you know on a scholarship so you don't have to worry too much about money but then at the same time there's a major major culture shock um so uh, I mean I grew up Christian right and I think one of the culture shocks there was around the different variations of Christianity that existed So whether that meant like I'm in the choir with the guy who's playing the piano and he's gay or the guy we live in present worship with and then after that he's like oh let's go for a beer and I'm like hmm <laughs> this this version oh. I don't understand this version so I think there was a lot coming at me in terms of maybe I'll call it identity in the sense of just growing up knowing one thing and then meeting people who are amazing but the way we grew yeah. up we were taught certain things were not right or acceptable or who they were was not right or acceptable and yet they were amazing people so i think there was a lot of relearning some of the thoughts that i had about what was right what was wrong what's acceptable vice versa um there was the obvious yeah. challenges of like i remember when the first time i had is the computer because i didn't do computer science in high school i think you remember there was like a limit of the number of people could do computer classes yeah yeah, yeah. so The first time I used a computer was when I was doing the application and then I flew. And then suddenly I'm in class and you're supposed to be typing notes or writing papers and submitting, you know, typed papers and you're typing like one letter oh, wow. per minute. 
with the one yes, finger. Yeah. So you kind of resort to handwriting <laughs> your essays and then trans and then copying them onto you know the, 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 transcribing them onto a computer, which obviously slows yeah. you down. I think I remember like sort of moving from being in a good high school and being smart, and then meeting this lady. Yeah. Like I remember this girl completely clearly from Montenegro. And we were taking higher math, which was quite hard. And this lady is basically doing her Spanish homework in my math class because she's so bored. I'm so serious. Yeah. (laughs) So I think lots lots of new things. Like you're meeting equally smart people, really nice people with different um ways of growing up from you. And so you're you're mm-hmm. and you're also eighteen, which is still I think somewhat formative years. So you're trying to find out who you are and, and establish what your thought process is in the world. But again, I think mm-hmm. everyone was also in the same boat. So imagine about two to three hundred students, all of us coming from I think about seventy five different countries. So you're never really alone. And then you start to learn similarities between yourself and other people. Um, like for example, I remember this girl from Indonesia. We used to, she used to love sing a lot. Her name was Angel, and we used to sing a lot together. And we would try and find what similar words exist between Swahili and her language because they both have Arab roots. So there's just fun stuff like that. Like you realize, you people are not that different. You have a lot more connections with people than maybe we would have thought. Yeah. Um. How about the weather? How did you adjust? <laughs> I hated the weather, the rain. Oh my god! So UK wasn't that bad actually compared to the US because it was just a lot of rain. The biggest shock I think was when I went to the US and I was in New Hampshire, which is one of the coldest states. And then winter struck. And in Kenya, when it's cold, you wear jeans. That was mistake number one. You cannot wear jeans in winter because it will literally almost burn your legs. So just learning how to layer and things like that. Um, I think on one hand. I did I didn't do this very well but I think I tried to enjoy winter a little bit so tried to go skiing or or, or snow tubing or a few winter activities that allow you to cope I think if you tr- if you don't embrace it it can actually be really 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 depressing I, I'm not saying that mm. I did that like extremely but I think tried to learn a few things that allow you to get through winter one is just how to dress properly which my roommate sort of helped me figure out what's the right attire for winter and then to embracing activities that are seasonal in order to actually enjoy that season. But it can get... So was this in the UK or in the US? This was now in the US. Yeah. Okay. So um, do you have like a, like a story you can tell me, like something uh, um, what memorable from the UK? Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay. So we were in a boarding school, essentially. And there was curfew okay. at 10 p.m. And actually, the funny thing was... Okay. Because Kenya was a former British colony and like Moiji used to be a British high school, there were a lot of really interesting things that transferred. So, for example, things like changing your... I think we used to change our bed sheets, what, once a week you would take it to the house... What would, what did we call them? House Metron? Metron. Yeah, you take it yes. to the house metron and they give you a bed, bed sheet. Exactly the same thing. We had a house parent um, who, would uh-huh. keep your, who could keep your money for you and once a week we would go to the house parent's house. There was a curfew at like 10 p.m. You're not supposed to be wandering. And so there was something called night riding. Night riding is essentially mm-hmm. when you go between houses to visit people past 10 p.m., which used to happen a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. during, especially during people's birthdays, you would go out night riding um, to make sure that at midnight you can shower them. And the, the challenge was to come back and make sure you're not caught. But I think one of my favorite <laughs> night riding moments was like towards the end of the two years, we essentially with a couple of my friends went, we were, we were living by the, by the shore. 
So we essentially just went out to the seafront and spent like three hours in the middle of the night just hanging out and sharing stories. And there was me, there was a guy from Hong Kong, Germany, etc. And I think for me, it's those moments of the night that were really amazing. Just being able to, one, do something quote-unquote illegal <laughs> and night ride and not get caught, <laughs> but be able to understand mm. people's stories um, in sort of the middle of the night. Yeah, I think... Yeah, because mm-hmm. I remember in girls... Uh, me and you, we were, we were prefects. <laughs> and it was like the worst thing in the world if you were caught doing anything yeah. illegal. So I actually have a funny story. I don't know if you remember this. There was a Saturday in Muji where we were making, our class was making noise. Delta was notorious. We were making noise. Oh, and we God. were like four cops in the class, four or five of us. And then, I yes, then we decided to volunteer and say we were the ones making noise, thinking that Mr. Nabidi would forgive us, and we ended up being punished. <laughs> I don't know if we were made to slash grass or dig, I can't remember, but I just remember the virus. Oh, my God, we dug. Oh, gosh, I remember the blisters I got. <laughs> yeah, that was embarrassing. And it was a sato wearing gray sweater, people are going to like, and then we were also, you in chapel choir, we were in chapel choir. And see you. we had just joined actually. Ah. Was, was it, we had just, yeah. 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 Oh, oh my God. Yeah. So um, coming from an environment of like, um, you, like you, couldn't, you couldn't even think of doing anything yeah. wrong yeah. to, to being, to like doing whatever you wanted. Yeah. That must have been freeing, I yeah. guess. Yeah. That was strange. And and I think one of the other interesting things was not, I guess, not super interesting, but something that just comes to mind is coming from like eating ugali and bitter herbs, going oh, to the school where me, I thought the food was great, but everyone else was complaining about the food because we were essentially eating like, you know, chicken and fries and really good food, in my opinion. So, mm. you know, that freshman 15 kgs that creeps on and you're like, ah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so there was yeah. a lot of adjustment i think as well around that like just learning to how do you even eat right uh when you're coming from sort of a high school background where you're essentially being deprived to this high school background oh. where you can eat whatever you want and there's no one to sort of watch over that there was definitely like managing that as well Mm. So was there a time you felt like oh my god I want my mom <laughs> uh, yeah there were many moments like that I think one of them that clearly comes to mind is when we were applying to university and mm. all my friends I mean except for the like the other Africans who were in the same boat but all my friends essentially were like calling their parents to help them decide oh so I'm, I'm trying to apply to university which university should I apply to um, etc oh. and you essentially on your own trying to figure out am I applying to universities in the UK versus the US what are the implications etc um which which school should I go to um I think those moments like that when you're trying to make like essentially a major life decision right because it's essentially moving to a different continent for example it's trying to navigate what you're going to to study and then like Kenya where you're essentially placed into what you study based on your grades Again, my end got cut here. Um, My end of the conversation disappeared. But what I said was, um, it's chosen for you. Meaning that in the Kenya university system, the course you want to pursue is chosen for you, depending on the grade that you got. Um, At least in our day, that's what happened. I'm not really sure what happens currently.
yeah you. i think it's the burden of choice which is not necessarily a complaint but just a recognition that it's not always easy at the age of 19 to know uh which continent should i move to how do i go about applying oh. this there are counselors who would help but i think just seeing other people being able to reach out to their folks and talk about those decisions i think in the oh. uk those were some of the hard hard moments um about about that So how did you decide? Did you ever talk to your parents or you just decided I'm just going to do what I, what I want? Um, so, okay. Remember at this time, one, mm. I think I had just, cell phones were just becoming a thing, at least in our part of the world. So I had like a phone before I left to go to the UK. But when I was in the UK, I didn't have mm. a phone. So essentially the way we would communicate with my folks is I would buy a card, a calling card. And then like maybe once every two weeks or something like that, I would call them. So it wasn't like we were in constant communications and to make sure that they knew I was okay, I would always email my sister. My sister was good at sort of checking email. I would email my sister and then she would pass on the message. So it's not like we're in regular communication. But I think in terms of making that decision, it was relying a lot on other international students who were ahead of me and the school sort of provided system. And I think this is where I sort of started to learn how to let other people in who essentially become like your your second family and i think if you travel if you travel a lot it's something that then you have to do to establish a network of people that you can trust who can then support you because otherwise you're on your own so i think that's what essentially helped um just the school providing some of that support but also being able to tap into people who are ahead of me and ask how did you decide to go which school did you decide to go to like i remember the last two schools i had to decide between one was an all-girls school, which was really good. Hilary Clinton went there. And then the second one was a mixed school. And so, and oh. both of them are really good schools. And sort of trying to decide, hey, which one should I go to? I knew if I talked to my folks, they would have said I go to the all-women's college because I, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so I did not talk to them about that one. Yeah. So tell me about the transition from the UK mm-hmm. to the US. What was that? Um, so there's an in-between story there of how I finally got from the UK to the US. Um, there's yeah. a friend of mine who, um, this is very stereotypical, but he's Jewish and Jewish, uh, Jewish people are hustlers essentially. So he helped me. I needed to be able to travel back home, which my scholarship would have covered. But then I needed yeah. to get from Nairobi to the US. And that's like, I don't know, thousands, oh. maybe $1,500 or something like that. So this guy oh. essentially hooked me up with a job <laughs> in somewhere in London slash Reeds. And so I was working in like a printer shop for about a month. Um, that was probably mm-hmm. one of the loneliest times, actually, because now I wasn't really with family or oh, sorry, I wasn't with other classmates. It was essentially on my own for a month. I think I spent the birthday by myself. I remember walking down the streets and feeling like, oh, why am I? Why am I here? Because I was alone during my birthday, but worked for like a oh. month, got paid. And then I came back home stayed for a few weeks and then now joined the US. Um, I think one of the stories that always comes to mind is sort of landing in the US. I think I had like $100 or something like that in my pocket. Yeah. And we had to pay $50 from the airport to, I think $55 for a return ticket from the airport to the school. So I'm landing in this new environment, which I've never been in. And I had $45 and you're shown your room and it was just a room. There was no bed sheets or anything like that. (laughs) 
Okay, wait. So, for your uni in the US, you, you paid for yourself. It wasn't a scholarship. It was a scholarship, but it was not, it was maybe like 98, and I know I'm super lucky. It was like 98% scholarship. But then all the okay. other things are like upkeep. That's that's yeah. essentially, apart from like food, etc. But the other stuff is on you, like beddings. Um, I don't know if you've, you've seen in movies when US students are like moving into universities and their parents are coming with them yeah. to help them set up. So that mm. that that was happening, but then essentially you have this kid who just flew like I don't know eight thousand miles. You're not gonna travel with beddings. Yeah. yeah. So I land and I'm in school and I have forty five dollars. <laughs> um, wow. But the good thing again, I think, is um, so the international students sort of had like a mentorship program, and I got connected with my mentor. His name is Emmanuel, and within like a, a week, he had helped me figure out how to apply for a, a job, like the the jobs that you do in school i'm forgetting wait 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 let's just go back to the first night yes. how did you sleep that first night <laughs> how did i sleep i had a caleso i think <laughs> are you serious yes, it wasn't cold oh my God. it wasn't cold i landed in august august is fall it was not okay. cold but still i know, I know. <laughs> I had a lesson and then I think two days later the the one of this this lady's name, her name is Marsha, she was in charge of international students. She gave me like a duvet. So at least then I had a duvet mm. and um managed that for I think about a week or two. Oh wow. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you get like the funny questions Americans ask Africans? <laughs> Those are funny questions. Um I think even the UK as well, there were actually interesting questions around region. Which one is the most ridiculous question you ever got? For me, it was why my English is so good. Really? Yeah. yeah. I think they don't think that we speak English. I think why my English was so good. Um, that was actually always a surprise. And there was always that slowing down for you they, that they do, which is, I think, if you speak slower oh. and louder, you will understand it. Like if I didn't understand oh. English and you speak low, slower or louder, I'm still not going to understand it. But I think that was, for me, that oh. was the most ridiculous one was why your English is so good. Um... I I remember, and this, now if I, in retrospect, I think this is actually a shock. You know how people, like, at that time I didn't have dreadlocks, I had braids. And you know mm. how your braids can fall off? Now yeah. imagine if you've never seen a phenomenon like that, and then suddenly you just see like a braid on the floor. My roommate thought I had cancer. <laughs> <laughs> was, your roommate was white. Yeah. You're the white yeah. It, oh, it was, I had okay. roommates in my first year and they were all really sweet. But she legit was concerned. Like, why is your hair falling off? And that's when I realized, hey, yeah, this is not a normal thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she was like, you need to go see a, see a doctor now. Like chemo or something. I don't know. But I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. Why would someone's hair just kind of fall off like that? Okay. So they thought that was actually your yeah, hair. Yeah, that was my hair. I think there was the usual questions of if you change your braids, oh, you cut your hair this time. I'm like, uh, no, I just changed my hairstyle. But okay. Yeah. So speaking speaking of hair, where, where did you do your hair? Wow. This was another nightmare. So now... <laughs> me i'd never relaxed my hair before before up to this point which is like now maybe the age of 20 or 21 i can't remember but the first year that the first semester when i was in school i had my braids for like five months i just used to, yeah because when i'm like going to do my hair i used to wash it but mm. i had my braids for like five months because the next best place to go and do your hair unless someone in school knows how to do hair of which there were very few black people You'd essentially get oh. on a bus and go to Boston, which was like a two and a half hour bus ride. So you, just to get, just your, to get hair your hair done. done. So you pay $55 to and fro. Then to get your hair done, $200. It's like 20K. Mm. Oh, 
Okay. So yeah, there's no way that I'm doing my hair every two weeks. That hair stayed for five mm. months. When I took it out, I couldn't even comb it. And that's how I ended up mm. relaxing my hair because I couldn't comb my hair. Oh, yeah. You have black friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, They were, I think, essentially, most of my black friends were the international black friends. So whether they are from, I don't know, Ghana or Nigeria. Um, But I think, actually, I had more international friends than American friends. And so, actually, oh. my group of friends is essentially, and we keep in touch even up to now. I think it's, like, someone from, like, Egypt, Pakistan, Montenegro, etc. So, in terms of color, skin color, there's a mix of black and white. But essentially, all of them were non my closest friends were essentially non-Americans. I think we both, we all sort of felt, we're in the same boat. You're coming into a new space. Yeah. You're all trying to navigate it. Even if someone has come from, I don't know, Italy or somewhere in Europe, you're still navigating a new space. So it was easier yeah. to sort of get along with non-Black internationals for me than even Black Americans. Um, yeah. Did you ever feel like you you, you fit in with them? With, just because they were with black. black Americans? No. And I think this was all, yeah. this is, I mean, there's an ongoing debate about this. There's so many YouTube videos on Black Americans versus Africans, if you can even use the word versus. I think, yeah. not really. I mean, it's essentially, we're, we're coming from very, very different cultures. There was some, and you have to put in effort, the same way you'd put in effort to understand a white person, you have to put in effort with a, with a Black American. And I think sometimes we never always, we just assumed we would get along because we're all Black and never put in that effort. Yeah, yeah. so it wasn't automatic. Um, I think there was, we were just coming from completely different backgrounds, so it wasn't necessarily the easiest thing, I think, to, to do. Okay, so at this point, was it easier to like talk to your family more often? Yeah, so I think essentially... And here's the interesting thing now. When in Kenya you can just get a phone. I can just go buy a phone and then get a prepaid plan. Yeah. In the US you can get a prepaid plan, but you're paying like almost what two hundred dollars, four hundred dollars upfront for a phone. So essentially yeah. everyone gets on a postpaid plan. But to get on a postpaid postpaid plan you need to have credit history now as an international student how do i even have credit history secondly the banks will not even give us credit cards until the 2008 financial crisis that happened in the u.s and then now the banks were essentially just dishing out credit cards and that's how i got my credit card is because of the 2008 financial crisis but anyway all that to say that yeah eventually at least i had a a cell phone and a plan and would call them relatively often we still exp- it's actually really expensive to co- make a call from the US to Kenya than it was from Kenya to the US. Um, but yeah, yeah, a bit more frequently for sure than 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 the UK. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what's one thing you learned about yourself um, when you're living in the UK or in the US uh, that you did about yourself? Wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, you you might disagree with this. Okay, so bear with me. <laughs> I didn't no know problem. that I was feisty. I on. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know that I was feisty. I think I was I thought I was just normal. And then yeah. sort of over and over again as you're getting re- reports back from because the teachers would actually really spend a bit of time to give you report feedback on yourself so you're not just about your academic performance sometimes but also other ways that you're showing up. I think I didn't yeah. know how one feisty I was and then two how resilient I was. Um not everyone. And by feisty, you mean? By feisty, I mean I don't take no for an answer. Okay, yeah, that's the Christopher Lady. So <laughs> that's why I say you might disagree with me. I didn't know that honestly. I didn't think that that was a trade a, a trademark. Okay. And then it started becoming a lot more obvious. 
Um, and I think that's one of the things that actually really helped me because like when you're out on your own and you go to a, let's say an, an office administrator and you're oh. asking for directions or help or, you know, trying to figure out something and someone says no, if you're living on your own and you just then back down, then nothing ever happens. Yeah. So I think yeah. learning to persist and be like, no, 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 but how, how can I do this? What about this? What about that? I think that's one of the things that actually helped me survive is just that inability to hear the word no. It's not always a good thing, but it can be a really good thing sometimes. Um, just mm. no is, I really struggle when someone, like if someone tells me the word no, it feels like almost a personal insult. <laughs> but wait, what do you mean no? But, but what, what about this? Um, yeah. yeah and then I think the resilience piece as well I remember like graduating and not not everyone graduates I think you've had lots of stories of Kenyans who go abroad on school on a scholarship or go to study and don't finish yeah. either because of sometimes it's really hard because essentially when I was studying I was also working like three student jobs so it can be hard to manage school and um, and work but yeah. that's one piece of it. And then I think the second piece of it is you always hear of stories of people who went and it got, it got really hard being away from family and they got into alcohol, drugs or whatever, got married, never finished. So I, I think I remember sort of graduating and, and actually that moment hitting me that, hey, yeah, by the way, this is not guaranteed that this should have happened, that you're on your own and you essentially made it and didn't one flank out, but actually you did well. Was there a time you felt like, uh, I think I can also get married, <laughs> forget this school thing? Mm, the marriage part, not really, because I was in an, I, the school, the university I was in was pretty much isolated. We were like in... No, I mean, like, did you ever feel feel like giving up at some point? Not in the sense of, let me give up school and leave, but in the sense mm -hmm. of the major that I was doing. So I did engineering and... Mm. The school I went to, they sort of teach engineering sciences. So the first four years, you have to do every single kind of engineering, a class on mechanical, mm -hmm. a class on computer engineering, et cetera, computer science, et cetera. And then the fifth year is when you sort of specialize. So my first, mm -hmm. one of the first classes that I took that was a, a, a mandatory class for engineering was a programming class. Now, and this is where you now start to see the differences between like growing up here versus growing up um, privileged. Because I was in a class with people who'd started programming from the age of like, I don't know, eight or 10. Mm. And then me, remember the story I told you of the first time I was using a computer was to apply for my scholarship. So you're in a oh. class and the professor mentions binary and we're like, what, what is binary? He talks about different kinds of programming languages. And I think that's the lowest grade I've ever had in my transcript. And I almost flunked out of the class. Okay. And because it was a compulsory requirement for engineering, that's the moment I was like, hey, maybe one, I'm not smart enough. And two, maybe I'm not supposed to do engineering. Oh, yeah. Wow. I remember like going to the counselor's office and almost breaking down, trying to figure out what am I going to do about this? Um, yeah, I think so to answer your question, not not leaving in terms of like leaving school and taking an easier route, but in terms of questioning whether I was smart enough to make it through the major, that was a big one. Because again, if you like the school I was in, passing grades one, 70 was not an A. We were used to 70 being an A. An A was like a 90, 90 95 to 100. That's an A. So you can get a 70%, you can get an 80% and you're barely passing a class. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. Huh. Okay. So, how was your 
<laughs> Looking back, how was your mental health at this point? It's uh, a good question. I think when it comes to mental health, I think at that point I was actually, if if I'm if I look back and you know it's it's really hard to think back to that moment and be completely honest about it. So I'm yeah. trying to think about it, but I don't think it was actually bad. I think in as much as I'm describing the situations that were tough, at the same time it was all on a backdrop of oh my god, I have like a ninety percent plus scholarship to an Ivy League. There was always that driving yeah. factor. So there was amazing opportunities that were coming my way like my junior year I got an opportunity to do an internship in Germany there was travel there was I could work the three jobs that I'm talking about and you know buy my books so even though there were the tough situations that were ongoing I think in terms of mental health there was a lot of resilience maybe because I was younger and I had a really good network I think the parts yeah. that maybe took a hit in terms of mental health and perhaps self-esteem were being a black woman in a primarily black environment, mm-hmm. sorry, white environment, and you're yeah. at an age where you're supposed to be dating, no? But then, yeah. I mean, you, you can see it now happening with what's going on with racism in the US. And essentially, yeah. being a black woman, it's like you are at the bottom of that pyramid <laughs> in terms of the dating scene. Yeah. So that that Aww. part, I would like that part was really hard because it it takes a lot for you to see yourself as beautiful in a space where beauty is defined as Caucasian size four, Blood yeah, exactly, and you don't see <laughs> any of that. So there was a lot of conversations we used to have with oh. my girlfriends about about just you know trying to have a bit of a social life in a space where socially you're you're at the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So you finished uh, school in the US and then you came, you came Not back to Not straight away. I worked for like three years and then came back. Mm-hmm. I worked in Boston for about three years in a consulting firm. Um, I was one of, just I guess speaking about race, I was one of four black people in the company. I think about 200 plus people. It's, it's grown now. And I think there was this kind of inherent pressure that we always put on ourselves. But I think especially when you're finding yourself constantly in spaces where you're the minority, I was like, failure was never an option. Um, because yeah, I don't want them to say, I was one of four black people, but the only African. There was a Nigerian, but she was Nigerian-American. I was the only African. And there was no way in hell I would let them think that, you know, that stereotypes of Africans are lazy, etc. So I just felt like, hey, oh, I have to speak. I have to hold this one up for my people. <laughs> so we would work late like we would work sometimes until three in the morning and that's when you take a cab and go home sleep come back to the office by eight it was a lot of long hours yeah 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 so at what point did you come back um so i came back home after about three years and it it was kind of like a joke to be honest so I remember clearly this conversation I had with a friend of mine, Mumbi. She was also studying in the U.S. at the time. She's Kenyan. So she'd called me a few times that week and I was not picking up because work had been crazy. And as I was mentioning to you, working late hours. So on a weekend, we were talking and she was like, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm working. She's like, Christopher, you're working this hard. Why don't you go and work this hard back home? And then that's, I think, oh. what the conversation that essentially sparked my thought process around, you know, even when I got that first scholarship, I'd said, you know, I'll come back because at that point you say anything to get a scholarship. But it was kind of always oh. at the back of my mind that I had said I'd come back and I had never come back. So my friend Mumbi was like, OK, why don't you send me your resume? I'll send it to this guy I know who works for Dalberg. It's a consulting firm and they had an office in Nairobi. She, you guys can talk about oh. prospects of, you know, moving back to, to the continent. So I sent this guy my CV. 
as hey looking forward to our chat here's my cv just to give you like a sense of who i am before i know it this guy has forwarded my cv before i know it i've had three interviews and i have a job offer and i'm like oh uh i guess i have a job offer so maybe i'll move back home so it wasn't planned out it was almost serendipitous and yeah that's how i ended up back home and essentially telling my parents oh by the way i'm i'm coming back home <laughs> were they happy that you're coming back i think back? there were mixed feelings like my sister christine was always terrified that i'll come back and i won't be able to fit in again I'm like but but i was here for like the first 18 years um i think there were mixed oh. feelings absolutely happy that i was coming back but i even though it was never vocalized often I think maybe a question around am I giving up something um and mm. will I be okay if I come back yeah but I think overall yeah. there was they were happy that I was coming back yeah do you think that that that's like a wrong perception because we think like if you are living outside mm-hmm. Kenya then life is much better and it's mm-hmm. easier <laughs> absolutely like I've had many many conversations with my friends my my sisters as well about living abroad i think the one way that my life was not hard abroad then as i'm describing yeah. those funny incidences was one i had an almost full scholarship and then when i graduated yeah. i had a job like i applied for a job before i graduated and i had a job i was i graduated had two months in between and then i started my job that is not yeah. the experience that every other immigrant has when they when they're in the US it can be really hard especially if you're paying your way like if your parents are not paying or you're not on scholarship and you're paying your way gosh it's hard yeah. and then you're on your own there isn't a social network that you're tapping into you've left family i think you've you've, you've had probably a lot about mental health issues in the US and I, a lot of that is driven by being disconnected from humans um uh, so i think it is a there's a misconception that just because you are in abroad that life is better now granted life is better from a materialistic point of view the infrastructure is better you have uh, access to so many things things are cheaper etc but from a social point of view it's not always better um uh, yeah so how did you settle that with your with your people um might they just go to i think more the latter <laughs> because I mean um everyone has a different opinion as to what makes sense right and and I and I think at that mm. point maybe I don't know if this always came through but I was never going to convince them that it was the right choice because even me I don't know what the right choice is right I came I'm lucky I'm okay mm. because the stories of people who came and they were not okay um mm. I do think it's it it's maybe it's a matter of just accepting that yes there's a chance that this is right there's a chance that it's wrong but either way you have to trust that in the same way that i left at 18 and went and was okay i'm going to come back at 26 yeah. i'm older i'm smarter i have a degree i'll be fine and i think maybe that's yeah. it like trusting that the resilience that sort of saw me through is going to be the same resilience that allows me to thrive as opposed to be to argue yeah. as opposed to to sort of focusing the conversation on who's right who's wrong what opinion what's right this truth in both cases i think um yeah so it just kind of got settled and I, i guess as i was here and getting to know my nieces and spending time with family it was it was the best thing for, for all of us yeah oh. so what was the difference um coming back to working in kenya versus working in the in the us uh, <laughs> i think i'll start with the positives i think in terms of the positives I think mm-hmm. I referred to this earlier where there was this constant pressure and I think I felt like I was always being questioned and having to work five times as hard to prove myself as a black woman. 
and in the work environment here i no longer had to do that like there was a baseline acceptance of who i am as an individual and no one was necessarily questioning my my intelligence And so like I remember one of my friends telling me like the first year I came I was so feisty ready to fight everyone and then I turned down over time and I think it's that constant space of if you're in a constant space where you have to fight and prove yourself you're very feisty and then I came and I no longer had to prove myself in the same way it wasn't about being questioned because of my race because um that was sort of baseline accepted so that was an easy that was something that i definitely appreciated social life as well definitely improved being back home <laughs> um i think some of the hard things were the environments that i was working in both i think in kenya and in zambia sort of finding myself either as being maybe the sometimes the only black person in a room still or something I know. Oh wow. Um because I was essentially working in development especially when I was in Zambia. You're either maybe the only black person in the room or you're if you're in a space where it's Africans you're the youngest. And then this oh. always worked against me that I was unmarried and somehow being unmarried means that you cannot speak and make sense. I don't know where people get that. But I think there was a lot of challenges about being young female black single. Um oh. Not, not you then. Like who, what? What? And then I have dreadlocks <laughs> and the tattoo that's mm. sometimes visible. So that was always an interesting space to navigate. There was a lot of, um, and I think a lot of women faced this. This is not about me coming back. I think the sexual harassment oh, yeah. um, in workspaces, especially if you're all of those things that we just described, it's like you only get respect if you have a ring on your finger. If you don't have a ring on your finger you're free oh. game for anyone to make advances as much as they want. I think that was always oh. a hard one especially I think in the last maybe 4 or 5 years. Yeah. So um I'm planning to do an episode on on, on being a yeah. woman in Kenya. Yeah, yeah. So maybe um maybe sh- share a story of maybe when you felt like you're being harassed just because you're a woman in your yeah. in your workspace. I'll share maybe two stories. I was on a flight. Um this was when I was working in Zambia. and luckily i could travel back and forth a lot so it was really good to be able to you know i was seeing someone at that time being able to come back and see them and also see my family um so one of, and i i love chatting to people i love understanding where people are coming from i'm that person who you don't want to sit next to in a flight because i will talk to you <laughs> so, <laughs> so i sit next to this guy and we start talking he's obviously older um senior guy works for one of the institutions that i will not mention here So we have an amazing conversation about work environments and health and development etc for like 40 minutes and then uh, eventually I'm like okay I need to do some work so I put on my headphones and I start working this guy puts his hands on my thighs on a flight uh, and I Michelle uh, I froze I think this is the interesting thing is you know you always think that if someone dares do that to me hey the hell they're going to get but in that moment when something like that happens to you you just you just freeze because is this there's a violation you feel like someone has just taken something away from you and i oh. i couldn't say anything so the entire flight i was quiet just put my headphones on do not look at him do not look at him eventually he's going to give up and like after that this went on oh. for 30 minutes yeah oh just God. this random man decided to put his hands on my thighs and that felt appropriate to him Um so we landed and I just printed out of there like ran through immigration went and went home and how long was it was like a two and two and a half hour flight from Zambia to Nairobi 
and I remember okay. being so torn between you know they always say when things like this happen you start questioning what what did I do what was I wearing how did I go wrong why didn't I say something there's yeah. so many things going yeah. through the mind I think another moment was essentially being in a room and having a conversation with people there were mostly men in the room I was the only female and not getting yeah. my voice heard like anything I say unless another man says it it's not a valid conversation for us to be having and so you're either learning yeah. to either speak louder or speak in a diff louder in quotes or speak in a different way for you to be heard and for you to be understood and it's like, like it's you can't win if you're too aggressive and too assertive they label you as being too emotional and everyone has talked about this you're either too emotional or too aggressive yeah. if you're quiet then your voice is essentially not heard and you're not smart enough so you can't essentially win uh-huh. and i think those moments sort of started forming who I am and allowed me to start coming into myself and a bit more confident in who I am because there's no winning either way. So I guess I might as well say what I want to say. Oh, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, it, and I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a long road, essentially, because I don't, I wouldn't say that I got there after one moment of reflection. I think there was many moments oh. of being angry um many moments of doubting whether you're smart enough because when when you say something and people in a room don't listen the question isn't oh why they didn't hear me the question is maybe i didn't say something smart then remember like i was what, i was 28 when I was... um during our conversation i started to notice that chris used the words smart intelligent and woman a lot and as much as this is baggage that a lot of women carry i think It's something that we both got in school. I remember being in Moji and feeling like you only mattered if you had what was considered the good grades, the A's and the A minuses. Um it didn't matter if you had low self-esteem or you had learning disabilities or a different learning style um or any other reason why you were not quote and quote performing as we like to call it. You were lazy and stupid. <laughs> Um for me the message that was being sent was if you just worked hard then you would get the good grades and that meant you would go on to be successful later in life. It's something that I now realize I've carried with me since my school days and it seems here that Chris is also struggling with the same despite her achievements. If you're not what is considered smart then your voice and opinion are not needed. So already there's major major imposter syndrome. I'm feeling like guy I'm just 28 what do I know about setting up a country what do I know about development and then here's a confirmation because I'm saying things and people don't listen. <laughs> so uh, I think it was a long journey. I used to call one of my friends back home called Angie and like Angie this happened and that happened and so she would sort of encourage me through it like no it's not your fault this is this is what you're dealing with and even allowing me to find a language for understanding that one that is mansplaining too there's a lot of patriarchal um and hierarchical things that you're inheriting or you're walking into and you just need to be aware of them and how the way you show up sometimes can be threatening to people because they can't put you in a box why would uh, a 30 year old I'm not more than 30 but why would a 30 year old be single why are you alone why are you smart why are you this and that and i remember one time my sister and i were looking for an apartment in Nairobi And essentially yeah. the landlord started questioning us insinuating that either we were prostitutes and someone was paying for us to be able to afford yeah. the apartment. But I think because yeah. people can't place you in a certain box, you're not fitting a certain stereotype, then you're yeah. threatening. 
And so either the easiest thing is to ignore you or try and make you doubt yourself. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest misconception about you that people have had? Um, hmm, that's a really good question. That mm. hmm, I think the biggest misconception that people have had is I am privileged and spoiled. Okay, why? <laughs> if you you know, I mean, you know me from high school. But if you met me now and then I'm talking about, oh, I, where did you study? I'm like, oh, I didn't even study here. The assumption is you paid your way through that. If you're speaking a certain way there's a, or you're talking about where you've traveled, etc., people make a lot of assumptions about who you are. And so because they don't understand what your background is and you're talking about all these different, I think, experiences that you've had in life, I think there's already an assumption that, oh, you're just another spoiled kid. So what do you have to say? I think that's one. And then maybe the second one is that... I think pe- people who I have worked with who report into me always got shocked at how much I would fight for them. It's like they, want, they, they didn't expect that, uh, right? Okay. Like I would, I would stand up for my employees any, any day to try and protect, try and make sure that their jobs, you know, are sustained, et cetera. And we've gone through this a few times where either we have to close an office, et cetera, and they get surprised that one, either I would fight for them or I remember one time forwarding a job application to someone who was working with me at that time and I was like oh this looks like it's a good fit for you and they're like why would you send me a JD I'm like because it looks like it's a good fit for you but aren't you scared you're going to lose me I'm like I don't own you and this is a good opportunity for you so you go I think people don't understand that I'm actually really invested in helping and making sure that people have uh, thrive in whichever and whichever way I can help that that's something that's really near and deep to my heart and I think it comes across like it doesn't come across because I'm I can come off as being very hard and I push hard. And so I push people who work with me hard. And so people don't see necessarily that other, I guess, softer side. So um, are you comfortable sharing the, the Zambia incident at the doctor? Oh, yeah. So this is, this was, an. I think, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, but this was an interesting moment where... I think when you asked about any sort of mental health related stuff in the US, I think I never really faced that in the US. I think the Zambia was a moment yeah. where I was maybe at the peak of my most stress in life, in my adult life. There was a yeah. lot going on. I think one coming out of like a relationship, moving to a different country. Zambia was probably the hardest country I've ever lived in for me anyway. Um, setting up office. And I think all the stuff I talked to you about, like imposter syndrome, etc. So it was all sort of culminating uh-huh. into lots of long working hours and not a very strong social network. So uh-huh. essentially, I think my last year in Zambia, I was just essentially falling sick like every two weeks, every two weeks I'm falling sick. I'd never had insomnia issues. Suddenly I'm not sleeping. Like I could literally sit on my bed for the entire night and then it gets to 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. I'm like, okay. I guess that didn't happen. I'm going to go shower and then go to the office. So yeah, the falling sick and the insomnia. So I was seeing a doctor who essentially recommended, you know what, I think you should see a therapist. And my head, I'm like, what? Me? Hell no. I've survived worse. Why would I go (laughs) see a therapist? Uh, um, And she kind of insisted and she even made the appointment for me. I was like, okay, this woman is really trying. So let me go. 
So I go see this doctor and we're talking about different, this therapist and we're talking about different things, etc. And then he's like, okay, so given your OCD, I think, and then he proceeds to say a few things which I did not even hear because he just <laughs> dropped that OCD bomb. And I'm like, wait, wait what, 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 what do you mean? Me, OCD, I'm not anal. I mean, yes, I'm particular about where I want my things. I'm particular about when I work in an Excel spreadsheet, I want it to look a certain way. But OCD, no, I'm not going to be the person who's like, I can't talk unless things are ordered like in a straight line. Um, So I remember like chatting about this with Hilda, who we both know, and telling her like how I was shocked about it. And Hilda looks at me and she's like, Christopher, you're joking. Like, what do you mean I'm joking? Like, you never knew this? I'm like, no, I never knew this. Like, yeah, I, I knew this from high school. So now I think, I don't think, honestly, that that's necessarily the right diagnosis. I think there is some tendencies of compulsion and i think it probably got exacerbated by all the stress factors that were happening and so now i was being pushed to try and control as much of everything as i can which then was resulting in all the long nights and the insomnia etc because you're constantly trying to control things and make sure things work in order so i think for me that was the first time that someone had ever mentioned to me the possibility of either anxiety or like oc oc ocd or ocpd or whatever and he just said it as a matter of fact like i should have known that that's a thing that i deal with but i didn't know that um in therapy there have been times when i thought accepting my diagnosis or my part in a problem i was struggling with meant that i was weak or crazy or that I should have known better, which is not necessarily what Chrisabel is going through and I wouldn't speak for her, which is why I ask why she's struggling to accept the diagnosis her doctor gives her. And I wonder if this had been a diagnosis of, let's say, malaria or any other physical ailment, would she have second-guessed the doctor? Would I have second-guessed the doctor? Why are you finding it um, hard to accept? <laughs> um, because I think in the ways that that shows up, that that, the ways that it shows up has always been the crazy person who always needs everything ordered before they can proceed, right? And no one wants to be labeled, yeah. even the word crazy in itself is problematic. No one wants to be labeled that. I think that's one. And then two, yeah. because it, it's perceived as a failure of sorts, for me, what I hear is that, oh, you've been pushed so much and things are too big for you. And so this is the result of mm. that. And I'm like, no, 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 I can't handle anything because I've always been able to handle anything. What do you mean I can't handle this thing? Like, mm. I'm the kind of person, Michelle, who when I'm sick, and I remember this used to happen when I'm in Zambia, I'm sick. That's when I go for a run because I'm like, hell, no, I can't <laughs> be sick. What do you mean I'm sick? I'll go for a run just to prove that I'm not sick. So I think in some ways, maybe it's still the perception that it's maybe a bit of a failure in some way. And yeah. failure has never been an option, right? So, no. Have you addressed this with your current doctor? Um, not that specific, because I think that in, in terms of how it showed up back then in Zambia, it's not showing up in the same way. But what we do talk about yeah. is this constant, this need for perfection and the resulting yeah. anxiety that then comes from it. Right. So I guess what we're pursuing is a lot more around where is that drive for perfection coming from? And why, after all the things that you've accomplished, does it feel to, why do you still feel like you haven't done enough or you're not smart enough or whatever? So that's the stuff that we've been sort of trying to navigate around. 
Okay. So um, the first time you went for therapy, mm-hmm. what, what are like some misconceptions you had about therapy? Um, that you know, yeah. maybe something you've now learned is not yeah. true, but you thought of it at, yeah. at, at the time. I think I always kind of thought that I needed to have my thoughts in order. Like I needed to know exactly what we're going okay. to talk about. Like here, here's my problem now, solve it. So I felt like I needed to have, which is the very essence of why people got therapy. I felt like I needed to have figured out what am I struggling with and then shared that with the person and then they helped me work through that. I think that's one. And then two, there was a misconception for me that you only go to therapy when you need something fixing. And that's why like, I'm like, no, I'm not going to go to therapy because there's nothing wrong necessarily at this point in time. But I think some of the valuable things have been just even understanding who you are and some of your thought process and having someone play that back to you has been extremely helpful. So I think to summarize Mm -hmm. one, it's that to one, I needed to have my thoughts put together and show up in a put together manner. And then two, that you show up when you need something Mm -hmm. and the value of therapy only comes when there's some brokenness that needs to be fixed. So I'm one of those people who think that everybody needs therapy. <laughs> I don't know if you. I think I'm starting to agree with you. And and you know, if you think about the olden days, I'm not talking like I knew what was going on back then, but people had therapy. Mm. The grandma conversations yeah, that people were true. having in the kitchen, that the people actually did have therapy. Even men, there was the the age yeah. sets, the age groups. That was some form of therapy because it was a place where you can come and you can be open and talk about what is going on with you. But we don't have that anymore. Mm. Those structures have been removed. Instead, now we sort of have to mm-hmm. go through a paid a system where you have to pay to talk to someone. But in retrospect, they were always there. They just got removed as we became more urbanized. Yeah. Mm. There's, I read about this group of grandmas in Zimbabwe because there's a statistic that, I don't know if this is true, but one in every four people in Africa actually suffers from a mental health issue. And this is not just mm. like a, the usual, you know, uh, you're depressed or whatever I think it's like the health issues that then we see someone kill someone out of jealousy or whatever but one in every four people mm-hmm. suffers from mental serious mental health issue now if you look mm. at the number of psychologists or psychiatrists we have they're not enough to actually treat all of them right because that's a huge number of people so in Zimbabwe there's a group of grandmas who essentially sit on a bench and work essentially work as therapists people just go and talk yeah that's nice that's it they just go oh, on top wow. because there's no way you can people can afford to pay for mental health services. So then it's really expensive. Yeah, it's really expensive. It's not accessible. There's a lot of stigma associated with it, etc. Not oh. everyone can afford. Yeah. So but I agree with you that I think everyone needs some form of therapy, big sisters type conversation. Yeah. 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 So um so this whole conversation has been about uh, your journey into adulthood. <laughs> Uh, do you feel like do you feel like an adult (laughs) (laughs) I think now yes in the sense that sometimes I I feel and this is not a comparative comment I think it's just I'm just talking about myself sometimes I feel like I've lived maybe five lifetimes just if I think about all the different experiences in different places and they can get very exhausting and I feel like those things forced me to grow up so fast so the first major growing up was I think that sort of living at 18 years old and being on your own and then you're in some ways forced to grow up I feel like my growth got really escalated um 
accelerated that's the word i'm looking for not escalated accelerated and then when things happen like mm-hmm. going to zambia and starting from scratch and setting up an office again that was another major major shift, major major leap so in some ways i feel like yeah if i'm an adult but it's exhausting to be an adult sometimes and sometimes i just want to not be an adult and you know have someone else take care of the bills um i know yeah. what's one thing that uh, that's confusing about adulthood something that you thought if i if i was grown up i would do that but then now you're grown up and you're like uh no <laughs> um i think relationships with humans not just mm-hmm. romantic ones but also non-romantic intimate relationships with people i think i thought mm-hmm. that you know when you're grown up you finally know how to handle your emotions better not react to people um know what you want out of a relationship etc i think that's the one thing i'm just like hey this one but i know this one mm-hmm. i'm not an adult <laughs> i think that's one area in my life that no. i'm like yeah that one i'm not an adult yet <laughs> it's just hard so on a lighter note, 2020, 2020, wow, wow, wow. it's been nothing, I think for everyone, nothing like I expected. I think I thought I would travel, you know, have fun. Um, uh, it's been good working from home. I think I actually have I've, uh, I've enjoyed being able to work from home and the fact that with people losing jobs and sort of losing their sources of income, I know that it's extremely privileged to be able to keep your job. So I think I've appreciated being able to transition and work from home. I think going into like the fourth month of working from home and I live by myself. I was just chatting with a friend yesterday and saying, "Do you know the last time I hugged someone properly was like in January?" <laughs> That's not okay. And I like giving mm. hugs and I like receiving hugs. So I think it's, I mean, that's just a proxy to say, I think it's a bit hard to, the day in, day out when you're living by yourself is actually a little bit hard. Um, mm. But it's allowed me to slow down a little bit more and sleep more than I maybe normally would, which is not a bad thing overall. Um, and mm. and maybe count my blessings a little bit more and appreciate the things that come my way more than maybe I mm. normally would. Yeah. Is there something that you've always wanted to do that you can do now that um, you have a little bit of downtime? The funny thing is I actually do not have any downtime. That's the funny thing. I think, yeah, mm. because because work has moved remotely and it's affecting business. So my role in my current company is partnerships and, and business development. There's actually a lot of pressure mm. to make sure that we can bring in projects um so the work hours are definitely not have not changed um secondly because we've all moved remotely everything is happening on the phone my colleagues are in the US so working later hours to be able to accommodate their time zones and vice versa and then i started doing my mm. masters in january so for me there hasn't been a downtime frankly speaking maybe the one thing that i started doing has been i started running again i'd stopped running I started running again in the mornings, which I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd stopped doing essentially. I think that's it. Oh, yeah, but I'm not baking bread and ginini. The things I see people post on social media, I'm not one of those people, no. Kina banana, banana bread, bread. Rye bread. Some no. bread. <laughs> Skincare routines. Uh, that's not me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So, I think that's all the questions I have. I don't know, do you want to plug anything? Um yourself maybe not for myself but just to share a really interesting podcast or maybe youtube channel i've been listening to over the last one year that has been interesting for me 
there's a guy called yeah. Tom Bilyeu and his channel is called Impact Theory and he essentially brings yeah. in people who've done phenomenal things and they just get to share about their experiences and I think the common thread is how they failed multiple times and then sort of pushing through adversity and 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 succeeding eventually. So I've been listening a lot to to Tom Bilyeu and and his wife and it's a really good podcast so I would I would recommend it if you if people have time to listen to that. So so anything else you would want to say? No, I mean just thank you so much for for hosting this. This was fun being able to go back and reminisce and it's uh, also fun just seeing your your process and your you being brave to sort of put your journey out there for for other people i know that that encourages people i know sometimes we never have role models and just to sort of encourage yeah. you that what you're doing is definitely role modeling for someone else and so keep up the good work So that's the end of the interview guys. Um thank you so much Christabel for doing this. Um I will link the podcast Christabel mentioned in the show notes. Please have a listen and let me know what you think. Um this week I'm re-listening to In Therapy. It's a podcast about different African people's experiences in therapy. I really loved it the first time I listened to it and I've been listening to it again this week. There are only 10 episodes with the longest episode being 34 minutes long. So I encourage you guys to listen to it and maybe you can get your questions answered about being in therapy. The podcast is now available on YouTube in addition to your favorite podcast. Just search for Kukubata Junkie. So that's the episode guys. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Mm-hmm.